uh, evening, we are going to spend some time uh, talking about where God is and what he's doing uh, in the midst of the inevitable adversity uh, that has or will one day invade each of our lives. Uh, most of it, if not most of us, if not all of us, uh, have experienced to some degree, uh, some level of adversity. Uh, that adversity might come through pain, it might be disappointment, it might be tragedy, it could be loss or injustice. And uh, at this point in the message, typically what I do is I, I've spent some time and I uh, pull out, uh, you know, maybe a little article or uh, a story about someone who has gone through adversity. But I thought we do things a little bit differently uh, this evening. I, I thought we'd make this a little bit more interactive here in the first couple minutes of the service. Um, I thought that maybe hearing from some of you about the adversity that you have experienced in your life might help bring things into focus. So we're going to take uh, just a couple minutes here uh, this, this evening, and I'm going to be like, I guess it was Monty Hall back in the day. I'm going to work my way through the audience a little bit. We're going to look for some volunteers who are willing to, to share perhaps some adversity that uh, has inflicted, has been inflicted in their lives. And, and all I'm looking for is, I'm just looking for one sentence. Uh, don't need an, an entire long story or anything like that. It might be something like, you know what? I really want to be a mom. But we have struggled to, to be able to, to become pregnant for years, and I'm struggling with that. It could be, uh, I've been a, a horrible spouse, and uh, my marriage is completely falling apart. It, it could be, I've been diagnosed with uh, a disease that they don't know that there's a cure. So uh, we're going to try this out, see whether I fall completely on my face or not. This is completely dependent upon uh, the vulnerability of people in our Living Water family. So who wants to, to share? Just one, one sentence. That's all we're looking for. Got to keep it close, right? The greatest adversity that I think I faced in my Christian walk is being a Christian, okay. since I, for those that have been a Christian for years, when you get to that certain point, you look around at people that aren't Christians, and you're like, ah, and you got to remember, I was once there. Okay. That's my greatest adversity okay. right now. All right. Others? Just will go back here. This is good. My watch is counting my steps, so this is adding to my steps here this evening. Okay. Hello there. I recently struggled with uh, a family member of mine who just totally went off on me, and she's like a mother to me. So it just destroyed me. Like, I really had to get alone with God to come away from that in a Christian manner. Okay. All right. Thank you. How about others? My biggest adversity has been lately just struggling for inner peace. Okay, thank you. Others? Oh, yep. Come on over. Did you raise your hand? Yeah. There you go. I'm just waiting for God's timing for things. Okay. Very good. And over here, right? Where did I? Did you? I was a victim of domestic violence. Okay. How about any others want to share? They're definitely giving me my steps now here. Um, having a daughter who's homeless in New York City and has lost four children to the system. Okay. Well, it's definitely adversity. Maybe two or three more. Anybody else want to want to share, Terry? I'll come back there. Then. The fact that Thanksgiving's coming up, and both of my parents died the day after Thanksgiving. Okay. Um, the fact that I was a drug addict for 25 years and um, I've been sober five years, he changed me. Okay. 
I deal with uh, generational drinking and also uh, anger. Okay, thanks. Anybody else? Oh, oops. Oh, hey, Miguel. Yeah, um, I recently quit my job. Uh, and I feel that I made, made a big mistake. Okay. And it, that's happening right now. Okay. So I feel a, adversity. Okay, no doubt. Come back here. Um, I'm dealing with trying to find balance of being a single mom of four children and a college student. Okay, that's definitely some adversity there. There was one wall over here, yeah. Maintaining patience and tolerance with uh, my husband's ailments. One more over here. Okay, well, thank you for uh, being vulnerable uh, there. Uh, you know, all of those, they're, they're difficult challenges, and I'm sure there are other folks in this room who struggle with adversity that they are not willing to share right now. But, you know, these are challenges that they, they stretch our faith, they reveal our character, at times they endanger our joy. And, you know, everything uh, that's natural about us tells us that, that adversity is bad, that, that we, should, we should flee it at all costs. And uh, yet Jesus' half-brother, James, tells us something very different. This is what he says. That's all right. There we go. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But the question is, how in the world do we do that? We know that's in the Bible. We know that we're, we're called and challenged to do that. But how in the world do we do that? How do we find joy in the midst of adversity? How do we uh, grow in our faith when the world is just absolutely crashing down amongst us? How do we clearly see God's purposes uh, through all of those tears that are overflowing in our eyes? And uh, as we go through uh, the book of Genesis and continue our study tonight, we're going, to, we're going to glean, I hope, a fresh perspective on adversity. And I'm hoping that that fresh perspective will help us to find the joy that James is talking about. So, so let's get started. Uh, we're going to spend some time uh, this evening uh, in Genesis chapter 39, the very end of it, and then work our way through the balance of chapter 40. So if you have a Bible uh, with you or a Bible app, go ahead and make your way to, to Genesis 39. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those with you. Uh, that's our gift uh, to you. Uh, we're going to start in verse 19 of Genesis 39. And for those who are able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. Genesis chapter 39 starting in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, Potiphar's anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made succeed. And sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. 
they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came, in to, came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened in the grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention to me, me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing, but they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating out of it, out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So from this passage, uh, we're going to learn four principles this evening, folks, about what God is doing in the midst of our adversity. So I want to give them to you uh, right from the start, because I know a lot of you like to take notes, and uh, it might be helpful to have these, these main points up front, and then we're going to just kind of work our way down through each one. So the first one is this, that God uses adversity to make his presence known in our lives. That God takes adversity to, to make his presence known. The second thing is this, that God uses adversity to demonstrate our faith to other people. The third is God uses adversity to increase our faith. And then finally, God uses adversity to redirect our trust. So that's kind of where we're headed this evening. Let's look at the first one, that God uses adversity to make his presence known. At this point, uh, somewhere, uh, at this point in time, Joseph is somewhere in his mid-20s. Uh, we know this because he was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And we also know from Genesis chapter 41, which is uh, the chapters that we're gonna, uh, chapter that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, that in verse 46, that Joseph was released from this prison that we read about when he uh, was 30 years old. So in this short time span of his life, some, some 20 years, Joseph has had some major ups and he's had some major downs. But one of the major ups was the fact that, hey, he was the, basically the favored kid. Dad had a, a whole lot of kids and, and dad favored him more than any of the other kids. But there was actually a downside to that. There was jealousy amongst all of his brothers because he was the favorite child. And the brothers were, were so angry, had so much hatred to him, that, that we were told several weeks ago that they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. Now, this hatred became so great that they ultimately, they sell him in 
to slavery. They, they take them, they throw them in a pit and say, hey, let's not let them die in the pit. Let's actually make some cash off this guy. So they sell Joseph into slavery. Now, after being purchased as a, as a slave, Joseph is eventually elevated to the number two position in the household of his slave master. He's the number two guy. He's in charge of everything in the master's home. So that's a positive thing. But what should have been good for a long period of time turned out bad because he becomes the object of the, the wife of the slave owner's lust. She's constantly lusting after Joseph, constantly going after him. And even though he faithfully resists all of her persistent advances, he's falsely accused by her of rape and quickly placed into prison. Now this dude has got a lot of reasons to despair. He's been betrayed by his brothers. Uh, he's been removed from his mom and dad. He's been sold into slavery. And he ultimately gets thrown into prison for a crime that he didn't commit. He has every reason to believe that God has abandoned him. Every reason to think, you know what? God, I've been doing all of this stuff. I'm trying to live right. But you have completely dumped me. Where are you in the midst of all of this chaos? And folks, that is where many of us go when God doesn't work the way that we think that he should work. And when things don't go the way that we think that they should go. You see, if we're honest, many of us feel like God actually owes us something. And then when he doesn't deliver, and adversity shows up in our lives, we conclude that he has abandoned us. Yet here in Joseph's case, we read something completely different. Look again at verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You see, in the midst of Joseph's adversity is the unseen hand of God. Rather than being treated like a, a common criminal, the keeper of the prison looks upon Joseph with favor, so much favor that, that he elevates Joseph to basically be the, the position of, of the acting warden. You know, how is that, how, how's that possible? He goes from Joseph the prisoner to Joseph the warden. They don't do that at DCP. They don't do that at Camp Hill SCI. That's never going to happen, Right? No prisoner is actually going to run the show in any of our correctional institutions. But that is what happens here. Joseph is at the lowest point of his life. He's in an Egyptian prison. His crime, honoring his master's wife. That's his crime. And you have to believe that he felt like everyone had abandoned him most of all God, but that wasn't the case because God was there with him in prison working on his behalf. And brothers and sisters, that is the way that God works. Sometimes God is closest when our circumstances scream that he's the furthest away. And the Psalms are filled with this. In Psalm 77, the writer who is in obvious distress, he starts off with this lament. Listen to what he says. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This guy, he is in a bad place. And if that's not a bad enough, a few verses later, this is what he says. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut up his compassion? In other words, has God left me completely? 
I've cried out to him faithfully, expecting him to work in my life. But, but nothing seems to be working. Nothing seems to be happening. And many of us have been there. Many of us have cried to God in our adversity and deep down wondered, God, are you even there? Do you actually really even care about me? And if you do, are you powerful enough and are you loving enough to actually do something to improve my circumstances? And that, brothers and sisters, is a bad place to be when we're questioning whether God can actually work on our behalf. But listen to what the writer of Psalm 77 concludes. Look at verse 11, and then we'll read 16 and 19. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. What does he do in the midst of his despair? He looks back to see how God has worked in the past. And what happens is when you and I are in the midst of despair, a lot of times we forget the past. We're so caught in our our present circumstances, we forget how faithful God actually has been in the past. And then he says this, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightning lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. What is he talking about? He's referring back to the Exodus when when God takes the Israelites, the, the future generations of Joseph, out of slavery in Egypt, and he parts the Red Sea. He's saying from his experience, God doesn't take you out of the storm. Rather, he walks with you through the storm, and even when you can't see him, his footsteps are still there. See, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves in the midst of adversity. We can be confident that God is there guiding and directing our affairs even though we can't see him. Because God uses adversity to make his presence known. That's what he does. He allows bad things to happen in our lives so that all of the bright, wonderful things that blind us to who God is are able to be seen. But there's a second thing that he does. He uses adversity to demonstrate our faith to others. Look at verses 1 through 8 in Genesis chapter 40. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and the baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came in in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. See, after some time, Joseph, he's joined in the prison by by two high-ranking Egyptian officials from Pharaoh's court. The first is is the cupbearer. Now, now this guy is a whole lot more than than you want to think on the surface here, okay? He he does far more than than simply spending his his Friday nights over at Springgate Winery uh, sampling uh, Marty Schaaf style's uh, finest oak chardonnays, okay? Far more than going to Springgate. What is he doing? This guy, he opens bottles, he tastes wine to make sure that, that they're acceptable to the king and not poison, but he does so much more. Because of his proximity to the king, 
He would have been a, a close confidant who would have wielded incredible political influence. He would have been a member of the king's inner circle. Now, joining the, the chief cupbearer is the chief baker. Uh, this guy would make the folks over at Pennsylvania Bakery look like a bunch of high school home economics students, all right? I mean, th this guy was the numero uno baker in all of, of Egypt. And uh, he's in charge of a large part of the king's kitchen. He's also in charge of making sure that the food doesn't poison the king. And like the chief cupbearer, he would have been a trusted member of the king's cabinet. Now, we don't know what these guys did to tick off Pharaoh, but they surely did something to, to get them thrown into prison. But not only are they thrown into prison, they don't actually know what the outcome of their life is ultimately going to be. So they're just kind of like in a holding place right now. They don't know whether they're going to get out. They don't know whether they're going to stay in there forever. They don't know whether they're ultimately going to get killed. Now they're in prison. Joseph is assigned to care for them. And at some point, these guys have, uh, have dreams, and, and they're troubled, so troubled that in the morning that Joseph notices their consternation. Now, the Egyptians, they put great emphasis on, on dreams, so much so that they had professional uh, interpreters who maintain catalogs of dreams and, and the interpretations that they got from those dreams. And they believed that, that dreams told the future. So for these two guys, these dreams really mattered because they had no idea what the future actually held for them. And so they want uh, interpretations, they want interpretations quickly, but they have a problem. There's no one to interpret their dreams. And this is where Joseph has an opportunity to demonstrate his faith in God, which is the second thing we learn about what God does in the midst of our adversity. Now, notice what Joseph says. He looks at these guys and he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Completely contrary to what these guys would have been thinking because they believe that the, the interpretations belong to the professional interpreters. But he says, do not these interpretations belong to God? And from, you see, Joseph's life, it hasn't turned out the way that he would have expected it to turn out. From a human uh, perspective, he's got every reason to dump God. Hey, but look what happens here. He has the opportunity to glorify God in front of two powerful men, men who don't share his same convictions about God. So he puts his faith in God right out there. Those guys could have laughed at him like, hey, don't, don't tell me about your God. You know, who are you? You're, you're, you're like a rookie. You know, we want the professionals. But he doesn't waver he doesn't backpedal. He's bold in his faith. His actions remind me of Proverbs 28. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You see, when we face adversity, folks, it is easy to be timid about declaring our faith because a watching world sits back and thinks, you know what, that God that you serve, he's dumped you. You know, you talked about God and how much you're serving him and how much he loves you and stuff like that, but look at the mess you're in right now. Where's your God? But things, when things go south and when our friends start asking those questions, what, what are you going to ultimately say? Are we going to be timid? Kind of tuck our, our tail between our legs and, and change the subject? Or are we going to be bold in our commitment to Jesus and his word? And one of my favorite accounts of the Bible occurs in Daniel 3. In Daniel 3, there's this guy by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. He's just built a, a huge golden idol. It's some 90 feet tall. That's nine stories tall. It's like three times the height of the steeple that's here uh, in, the, in the building. And uh, he commands everybody who... Uh, is in his uh, domain, his, his kingdom, that they need to, to worship this idol. 
And there are three young Hebrew men who have found themselves uh, in captivity in, in Babylon. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, they refuse to bow down and worship this statue. And so they're brought in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You talk about adversity. Worship the statue or die. That, brothers and sisters, is adversity. Listen to what the young men say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. See, brothers and sisters, that is demonstrating your faith in the midst of adversity. And it's what we're called to do when adversity invades our lives. But God does something else in the midst of the adversity that we face, and it's to increase our, our faith. Look at the next couple of verses, 9 through 15. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened in the grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of the three branches. The three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to his office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this, this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. See, what God does in the midst of adversity is he uses it to increase our faith. You see, upon hearing Joseph saying that, that interpretations belong to God, the chief cupbearer decides, what do I got to lose? Let me, let me share this dream with, with Joseph. And, and so he details his dream, and almost instantaneously, Joseph gives the interpretation. He basically says this, look, you know, things are going to work out for you. Uh, you're going to be released from prison in three days, and you're going to re resume your role in the Pharaoh's court. Now, he has shared some good news with this guy. And so Joseph's thinking to himself, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to be on this guy's good side because I've shared, shared good news with him. And so he decides to kind of make a little plug for himself, a little plea for himself. So he basically says, you know, you know dude, you're not the only one who's been falsely accused here and put in this prison. I, I'm, I'm just as innocent as, as you are. My brothers tossed me in a well, sold me as a slave, then some sex-crazed woman uh, accused me of rape, gets me tossed into prison. Uh, so when you bust out of this joint, would you do me a favor? Would you talk to Pharaoh so I can get out of this place? So he basically makes that, that, that question, and he puts this plug in for himself. Now, I want you to notice something. Notice how the chief baker, he's been quiet the entire time. He doesn't say anything at all. He's not nearly as quick to, to share his dream as the cupbearer. But something changes. Look at the next couple verses, 16 through 19. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream 
There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the baskets on my head. And Joseph answered him and said, This is the interpretation. There are three baskets, there are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. You see, the reason that the cupbearer, or I mean the chief baker, finally speaks up is why? Because his friend has received a favorable interpretation. So he tells his dream, and again, Joseph answers in an extraordinarily timely manner. But this time, the news isn't nearly as favorable. Rather than being released three days and returned to his service in Pharaoh's court, uh, the chief baker is going to be taken out of prison, and he's going to be executed. Specifically, his head is going to get cut off from the balance of his body, and they're going to take his body and impale it on a stake and let the birds pick it apart. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Now, something very important has happened here with Joseph as it relates to his faith, and it's this. You know, it's one thing to give someone a positive report. It's completely another thing to give somebody a negative report. One of the ways that we can see God growing Joseph's faith is that it is, he is willing to share not only good news, but he's also willing to share very bad news with someone who is very, very powerful. You see, adversity has a way of growing our faith and helping us to trust God and God's word more. You see, when bad things are happening in our lives, when we see God at work and when we actually survive the adversity that we thought that was ultimately going to kill us, it strengthens our faith and helps us to put our trust in Jesus and God's word more. And this has been true in the life of me as a pastor. Early uh, in the early years of Living Water Community Church, back in the, the early 2000s or so, you know, one of the things is, that, I'm just going to be really straight with you, one of the things as a pastor that I was nervous about doing was calling out sin. I wanted everybody to like me. I wanted everybody to like living water. I wanted to avoid conflict as much as possible. I mean, think about it. You, you, you quit your job. You spend three years of your life going to seminary. And you start a church with eight adults, or eight couples, 16 adults, and a, and a couple little kids. And that's where you've got to earn your livelihood. You don't have another job. You're, you're, you're totally banking that this puppy is actually going to work. And so there is an inordinate amount of pressure to keep every stinking person who walks through the door. You want every one of them. You don't want to tick any of them off. You want them to, to come back. You want them to bring their friends, their neighbors. You want them to pick up people along the way and bring them with them. That's what you want. And as a result, although I was committed to, to teaching the truth of God's word, back in those early days, I pretty much leaned towards the truth that was present, pleasant. That's what I stuck with. I stuck with, you know what? God loves you. Jesus died for you. Heaven's a wonderful place. You ought to love God and you ought to love others. That kind of stuff. But over time, God allowed circumstances to come into my life where I couldn't avoid the tough stuff like sin and hell and discipline because people were doing bad things to other people. And those bad things had to be addressed. And in the process of addressing those bad things, adversity came my way. And God taught me that he's faithful in the midst of adversity and that I could deal with those difficult things and actually still live. Did I lose friends in the process? 
you better believe it. Did people leave living water? Absolutely. But in the end, God's faithfulness in the midst of adversity helped me to have the courage to teach the full counsel of God's word, both the pleasant and the difficult. And God will do the exact same thing for you. You see, let's face it. The vast majority of us, we are conflict adverse. We don't wake up in the morning and think, let's go find some conflict. That's going to be a great day. Let's see who I can tick off. Let's see who I can make angry. Let's see what kind of grief I can bring into my life. We don't want conflict. So what do we do? We, we ignore things, we minimize things, we, we cover up things, hoping that they will ultimately go away. But they don't go away. And we ultimately have to deal with one, them one way or another. And as we, do, as, as we do that, adversity is going to come into our lives. But in the process, God proves that he's faithful. And, and we will become bolder in our faith to deal with not just the easy things, but also the hard things. That's why God lets adversity come into our lives. He strengthens us. And our faith grows. Okay, last point. Look again at the last couple verses, 20 to 22. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among its servant, his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to, cup to his position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You see, the last thing that we learn is this, that God uses adversity to redirect our trust. Now you talk about a faith booth, a faith boost. Can you imagine how excited Joseph must have been when the third day came and the jailers showed up and they opened the prison doors and they took out the chief baker and the chief cupbearer? I mean, God had delivered just as he promised through Joseph. He's got to be like, this is awesome. This is incredible. Now, i got to imagine he was probably a little bit more excited for the chief cupbearer than the chief baker because some bad things were going to happen to the chief baker, but that's just a guess on my part. But even so, Joseph's faith clearly would have grown as a result of God working just the way that he had shown Joseph. And I could imagine also that he's excited because he believed that that chief cupbearer he was going to come through. He said, when you get out of prison, speak to the big guy for me. And man, he would have been pumped, thinking, man, he's going to get out. He's going to tell this interpretation that I had, and he's going to get my, my tail end out of prison. But sadly, verse 23 tells us that wasn't the case. Not only does the chief cupbearer not advocate on behalf of Joseph, he doesn't even remember him. How's that for a friend? I mean, you get nothing. Nothing. He completely forgets him. And that brings me to my final point. You see, God uses adversity to redirect our trust. It's easy in the midst of adversity to trust other human beings. We are quick to place our trust in our lawyer when we're going through a custody dispute. We're quick to place our trust in a local government official when we're having a political issue. We're quick to place our trust in our employer that he's going to maintain our employment when we're having financial struggles. We're quick to place our trust in, in the doctor when we're battling an illness or a real estate agent when we're upside down and we're trying to sell our house or a pastor when we're having spiritual trouble. But in the midst of adversity, we don't just put our trust in people, folks. We also put our trust in money, in our intellect, in our education, in our strength, in our beauty, or a million other things that we believe will ultimately deliver us from that adversity. 
But no matter how well-intentioned, know this. The Bible teaches unequivocally that people will always disappoint. We are so quick to put our trust in people. But the Bible tells us that people will always disappoint. Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. It's so tempting to put our trust in the wrong things when we're in the midst of adversity. So what's the right thing? What are we supposed to do when the wheels are coming off? Listen to the beautiful words of Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. You see, it is so easy in the midst of adversity to place our trust in people and to place our trust in things, but they ultimately collapse and fall. You see, our true hope is the one who will answer us from his holy heaven with a saving might of his right hand. For two more years, Joseph remained in that prison forgotten by the chief cupbearer. But he wasn't forgotten by God. And what we're about to do here in the next few moments, it reminds us of God's faithfulness in the midst of adversity. There's a song that, that we sing here at Living Water. It's called What a Beautiful Name. Lindsay's actually going to sing it for us here as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And it has a line in it that sums up the meaning of what we're preparing to do. And it goes like this. My sin was great, but your love was greater. You see, every one of us is faced with the greatest adversity of all. And that's that one day, you and I will meet a holy God. And that will make every other adversity pale in comparison. And if we meet that, that holy God and, and we try to talk our way into his, his kingdom through our own strength, relying on our own goodness, we are going to fail miserably. Because our sins are simply too great. God's standard is perfection. Not one slip up. Not one little white lie. God demands absolute perfection. And if you're like me, I don't bring perfection to the table. Today, Kathy was gone, John, or Mikey was gone, Nicole was gone, I was here by myself throughout the day. It was amazing to me the stuff that came into my mind. Thoughts that I had. Like, where does that thought come from? Where does that sinful thought come from? I mean, I, I, I don't even have to act. I just think. And my thoughts are evil. And to think that I would try to show up before the God of the universe and convince him somehow that of my own merit, I'm getting into heaven? 
come off my rocker. And God understood that. God understood that I and you could never, ever meet his holy standard. And so he incarnates himself in the God-man Jesus Christ. And his son, who was tempted in every way but without sin, lives the life that you and I are supposed to live. But he doesn't just live that life. He takes upon himself the penalty that you and I deserve for all of those sins. All of those horrific thoughts that I have. All of those terrible behaviors that we do. Jesus took that upon himself. In a moment, we're going to be eating uh, unleavened bread, which represents the, the, the flesh that was ripped from Jesus' body to make a penalty, a payment for our sin. In a moment, we're going to be drinking juice that represents the, the blood that was spilled on our behalf. That, that, that should be our flesh. That should be our blood. We should be like the, 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 the chief baker. If we were to pay for our sins, the payment would be head cut off, birds eating our flesh. But rather than you and I having to pay that, Jesus paid it. While my sin was great, his love was greater. And so as we prepare to take these elements, remember that our sin is great, his love is greater. You don't have to be a, a member of Living Water to participate in this. Uh, what you need to be is you need to be someone who has confessed your sins, repented of them, and, and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That doesn't mean you're perfect. But it does mean that you have received Jesus' atoning sacrifice for your sins. If you've not done that, I'd ask you to, to let these elements go by. But as you're letting them go by, I, I would ask you to consider this fact. What in the world are you going to say to God when you stand before him? If God would just list down the Ten Commandments and say, you know what, all you've got to do is have met all of these ten, and you can get in. How would you answer? And if you can't come up with the answer... As you're letting those elements pass you by, I, I'd ask that you would pray to God, God, show me. Show me who you are. Make yourself real. Remove my unbelief. Let's pray together, and uh, we'll have the folks come up and take the elements. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these elements. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, who you are. And I pray, Lord, as we uh, receive these uh, the bread and the wine now, that, Lord, you would uh, remind us of the great work that you have done to, to secure our salvation. May we be a very thankful people. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. If you would hold